The following is brought to you by Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Will Harris, and Craig. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast for May 21st, 2021. It's your old pal, Justin Robert Young, joining you from Austin, Texas. Got a great show for you today. The debut of a new segment. Get to that in a second. We're going to do a little update, a little newsy update on something that I warned everybody about if you got the PX3 Extra on Monday. But the January 6th commission is becoming a bigger story and we have still more non-Liz Cheney related divisions within the Republican Party. We are going to have an interview about journalism, rage clicks, hate watches, and whether or, not, uh, whether or not the media faces yet another reckoning. That's uh, coming up. Rob Howard is our guest. Uh, look, spoiler alert, Rob Howard's one of my favorite people on the planet. I've known him forever. It's overdue that he was on this show. And uh, now I am thrilled that we will be rectifying that. But here's what you really want to stay tuned for. After we tell you the news, after we give you this Rob Howard conversation, we are going to delve into a world that I find endlessly fascinating and I know you guys will appreciate a new segment on PX3 about negative ads. Yes. We are periodically going to go through a famous negative ad that shaped the history of how to run for president, how true they were, why the attacking party launched it, how the attacked party handled it, and how the world was changed because of it. If you like Raise the Dead, if you like any of the history stuff that we do on this show, you are going to love this segment, which kicks off with Willie Horton. If you don't know who Willie Horton is, strap in, baby. If you do know who Willie Horton is, then there's no way you're not listening to the end of this episode. But... Would that it were so simple, I'm sure, is the inner monologue of minority house leader Kevin McCarthy. Oh, once that pesky Liz Cheney was out of leadership, it was all going to be a united front walking forward. Biden's got a rickety economy, a problem on the border, and a void of leadership with Israel and an angry progressive base. Now's the time to hit him. Shields are down. Make him pay. Except for the fact that the Republicans can't get on the same page. At least in the House, they can't. I mentioned before, uh, uh, so a real quick plug, because when I'm this right, I need to give myself credit, but a reason to upgrade your Patreon pledge to $3 and getting our bonus episodes is that everybody who listened to uh, our, our PX3 Look Ahead episode on Monday morning, comes out midnight on Monday, so you can make it the first podcast that you listen to on Monday morning. We we told you 
We told you that this January 6th commission was going to blow up this week. And here's exactly how it blew up. Kevin McCarthy deputized John Katko, a Republican, to help find a equitable bipartisan solution to Nancy Pelosi's drive for a January 6th commission. The commission would be 9-11 commission style, meaning that it would be a board of people that would have subpoena power, find the information on why January 6th happened, and then publish a report about it. We played a clip over uh, from the Sunday shows in our PX3 Look Ahead talking about how this had been reined in in scope. Initially, Nancy Pelosi wanted there to be more Democrats than Republicans, and there was a time limit set on it, meaning that this couldn't go forever. It was going to wrap up at the end of the year. Now, here's where the story gets a little weird. Because John Katko's part of the Problem Solvers Conference. They rose to prominence when the Democrats and Republicans during the election couldn't come together easily enough on COVID relief money. So the problem solvers, which are bipartisan, came together and put forth a deal that didn't go anywhere. But they've stayed together as a fairly viable political grouping, specifically as Nancy Pelosi's numbers in the Senate have gotten shorter. So John Katko makes this deal. And now the only question was, will Kevin McCarthy support it? And today we found out the answer. Hell no. He ain't supporting it. Here's why. Number one, this is just going to be a sham. No matter if it's half Republicans or half Democrats, the media is only going to focus on who the Democrats call and not who the Republicans call. And also, Why do we need yet another investigation into this? There's already criminal investigations. There's already multiple investigations within the House and the Senate. Why do we need yet another one? Because this isn't 9-11. We're not wondering how the FBI, CIA, and NSA didn't catch this massive terrorist attack. There are a lot less questions about January 6th. Now, this is McCarthy speaking or I'd imagine he's speaking, what it really would do is be another circus to talk about Donald Trump for the media and to blame him for all of society's ills. So he says no, despite the fact that he's the one who deputized CatCo to go make the deal. Nada. Not going to happen. By the way, yesterday, Donald Trump did say that uh, he did not support the January 6th commission and hoped that McCarthy and Mitch McConnell were listening. Okay. So that means it's dead. Dead in the House, right? If McCarthy, the Republican leader, says it is. Not so fast, my fine feathered friend, because John Katko controls enough sway in the House to get enough Republican votes to make this thing pass. And that appears to be what will happen. This bipartisan framework will pass the House based on the bipartisan deal that was created by CatCo. So then where does that leave McCarthy? Who indeed is he actually leading? Wasn't this all supposed to be so simple after Liz was out of the picture? Indeed, there was even a moment that we didn't know whether or not the man who makes the moves in the Senate, cocaine Mitch McConnell, was going to support this framework. After all, McConnell is somebody who was not hesitant to speak his mind about Donald Trump after that January 6th. Riot. But he put that to bed on Wednesday, saying that he would not support that framework. So we'll see what happens in the Senate, but it almost certainly looks like it's going to get passed in the House. And if by the time that you hear this on Friday morning, 
because we're recording this a little early. Uh, if something happens and McCarthy is able to pull back enough Republican votes to make it non-viable in the House, then that is a good sign for McCarthy. But otherwise, this is a bit of an embarrassment. And beyond that, it's talking about literally anything else than what McCarthy wants to talk about. And that is the fact that Joe Biden is off to a rocky start. There are a lot of things to pick on Joe Biden about right now, and they are doing none of them while all of the oxygen is getting taken out of the air by stuff like this. Rage clicks. Hate watches. Pissed listens. Okay, I, I made the third one up. But this is the same concept. Get mad and consume. It's standard operating procedure for much of our mainstream media, aided by the unconventional and erratic tenure of President Trump. But does it need to be that way? And now that Trump is gone, has the business model of get mad and click gone the way of the dodo as well? Our guest today is a journalist and entrepreneur. His latest venture is Hiatus, a newsletter covering news and politics designed to reduce noise and stress so you can better understand the world around you. Welcome to the show, Rob Howard. Thanks for having me. So before we get into this specific issue, uh, uh, talk to me a little bit about the idea uh, of hiatus and and you know where it started and what you're trying to do. Yeah, totally. So I started um, hiatus, which is at hiatus.net, as a newsletter um, back in 2017. And you know, at that point, my goal was really I wanted to sort of be able to take an information diet or a break from sort of like the nonstop news, nonstop social media, and stuff like that. And I started saying, okay, well, how am I going to actually like do this? Like, what is like the mechanical like method or tool that I'm going to use to stay informed? Because I still want to be an active citizen, but not be overwhelmed by everything. And what I found was that there was a lot of daily newsletters that basically were just like clickbait into kind of the infinite like world of scrolling news, you know? Um, and, you know, there's a lot of, sites that are basically just like sort of feeding you controversial takes all the time. Yeah. But I really couldn't find a solution that gave me the information that I felt I needed to be a good citizen while simultaneously not, you know, intentionally overloading me with ads or clickbait or just sort of like seductive controversy that would pull me into that kind of like, you know, Facebook, Twitter, angry media world. So I decided to try writing it myself, and I started it as a weekly news briefing where I would um, you know, essentially try to take a calm, focused approach to say, what are the things that actually changed the status quo in the last week? Kind of ignore a lot of the noise and focus on the knowledge that you need to be an informed and responsible citizen. One of the things that I found fascinating when you first started it and... and uh... I think is, is a foundational uh, concept is you don't use links. Like, like the idea that the, the internet is this slip and slide and it's designed to be like that. And that's part of why it's functional and awesome. But in this specific context and the idea of news and getting down whatever rabbit hole and 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 bringing up the emotions and and fight or flight responses that we have kind of naturally that that is a feature not a bug to say you want to know what just trust me i'm i'm going to i'm going to do my best to summarize what it is and and try to digest this and then if you want to go look up other stuff go 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 take the effort but uh, uh what what was your idea with no links so really it kind of harkens back to what a paper newspaper would be like. And what I love about that is I really wanted to make it as much as possible a self-contained experience, right? So one of the things that I dislike about you know reading the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal on my phone is that it is an infinite experience, right? And there's yeah. actually a strong incentive for the publisher to get you to never stop 
clicking onto the next article and the next article and the next article, right? But, you know, if we're publishing, you know, a 16 page newspaper or a daily newspaper or whatever it is, you know, um, it's very much like you pick it up, you experience it, and you have something closer to a self contained piece of knowledge in your hand, right? So I really wanted to kind of evoke that idea with the newsletter where this is not just an entree into like a hundred other like clickbait articles, which I think many, unfortunately, many of the newspaper based um, newsletters are really just links to articles that just kind of like get you into like internet hell after a few minutes, you know? Um, So I really wanted to kind of bring that experience where it's like, I could actually feel comfortable turning off for two days or six days or a month or whatever, and read this, you know, 10 minutes a week and feel like I know enough about what's going on in the world that I'm not sort of like checking out in a negative way. If that makes sense. So you mentioned that you initially started this back in 2017. Obviously, that is a year into the Trump administration for which uh, fundamentally sort of reshaped the idea of media in general, but political media specifically, and then the slow morphing of all media becoming political media on one level or another. You then took a hiatus from hiatus, and now it's back. So why was it a good idea then, but not the right idea for the time? And why is it the right time for this idea now? I'd like to imagine that I was just four years ahead of the curve on newsletters being a good, viable, interesting business model. They're a big Um, thing now. (laughs) I'll take credit for that, uh, even if it's not due. Um, But basically, um, you know, so a few things have changed. One is just that I have just done a better job of just rebalancing like where this is in terms of my personal time, my other businesses, you know, the degree to which it is a business plus a hobby, stuff like that. So I just wanted, you know, I basically sort of was struggling with not just the business model, but also the time uh, commitment to it. So I've changed the structure of it, mostly in my head a little bit. Like, you know, I'm not necessarily going to publish on Friday at 2 p.m. every week, but I'm going to publish once a week for that briefing. And then I'm going to add a couple of uh, deep dive articles throughout the week. And just, you know, changing that sort of structure for me has allowed me to actually be a much more prolific writer and actually enjoy it a lot more without getting like burned out by it. Um, the other thing that's happened is that um, the m- software that's out there has just gotten way better and made it way easier for readers to engage with essentially like a newsletter that has a free tier and a paid tier, right? Um, so there's like multiple good pieces of software out there now that I kind of wish existed five or six years ago or wish I had created five or six years ago. But yeah. when I was doing this, you know, a few years back, it was like, man, there was just, you know, and I'm a web developer by trade, right? So I can do it, but there's just so much, um, you know, weird nuance to like, well, if I want somebody to pay a dollar a week or, you know, $7 a month or something, how do I actually make that happen? Right. Yeah. Um, so now we have Patreon, we have Substack, we have Ghost, we have a lot of sort of software that just solves a lot of those problems very quickly. And I think that they've actually done an awesome job with all that software. There's, you know, pros and cons to each one and, you know, pros and cons to each company. But I think the opportunity to do it in a way with way less tech friction uh, is part of what made me say, well, I should try this again. And also because I just see that, you know, the business model or the idea that I thought was cool, you know, five years ago actually is viable now, if that makes sense. Look, Rob, I I know you're a self-starter. I know you believe that you could have made this work in any weather, but (laughs) let me just say, if I can, if I, if I might offer another idea, uh, you were trying to sell rehab in the VIP of studio 54. And it's like yeah. when everybody's first getting into it, we're a year into uh, uh, the Trump administration and there is just all this lore falling out of the sky. We have Mueller, we have uh, Jerry Kushner, we have whether or not the Russians are actually trying to do stuff. We have the Facebook, all this things, all this stuff was happening. And now I kind of feel like everybody is 
They've gone through it. You know, to use our our drug metaphor, now everybody's like, oh, they're looking at their credit report and they can't buy a car, and a few of their friends are in jail or dead. And it's like, you want to know what? What was that rehab guy saying? I think maybe yeah. maybe th- there is something to this unplugging every once in a while and slowly digesting news as opposed to snorting it off Twitter uh, 18 times a day. And, you know, I definitely uh, saw that, you know, from an audience standpoint, you know, when I first started out, there was a lot of people who were like, the reason they were on board with this was because they were already subscribed to the idea of, you know, being on a low information diet. You know, they weren't politically apathetic, but they were aware of kind of like, I mean, it really is an addiction in a lot of ways. And I think um, the uh, companies that publish the news, you know, even if the journalists who are working for them are honestly doing a good job, which I think the vast majority of them are like, you know, they are in many ways selling something that inherently, you know, it's better if your customer gets addicted to it. Right. Yeah. And it's not, uh, you know, it's obviously not a chemical substance, but it is an experience um, that is negative in high quantities or in large quantities. Right. Um, you know, so it's a it's a real challenge to say, like, where is that balance between journalism and reporting, which we all agree is an important public good and public service. Right. And funding that public service in a way that you know, doesn't turn everything into essentially like a slot machine for a casino. <laughs> and and that's, I think, where we want to get into the meat of our conversation. And and that is what lessons we have learned through the last four years on what it did to media, how much of this was the bonanza of an erratic uh, uh, to dangerous president, depending on where you fall on the political spectrum, uh, versus long-term problems with the business model of the media. And, and, you know, again, to, to peel back the curtain a little bit, some of these conversations are the same things that we were having back in the early aughts when, when yeah. both of us, you know, we're, we're looking at the business model of newspapers and saying like, Hey, this is all going to go away. Like this is, right. this is on, on shifting sand, uh, uh, so much so that either of us probably with, you know, a, a really good resumes either wound up making our careers in newspaper journalism because we're like, yeah, let's let's strike out in, into, into, into the into the, the, the wonderlands a little bit. Maybe we'll just totally. set up forts. Uh, you'll be here soon. Don't worry. Yeah. And, you know, I remember, you know, it was in 2005, you know, we were looking at like, well, is Gawker going to take over all this stuff or is that Gawker model going to, you know, crush newspapers? And, you know, it didn't necessarily turn out in, you know, sort of like a straight line, simple narrative, but I think in a lot of ways, um, you know, what we were seeing, you know, sort of like post journalism school, right. has very much come to fruition. And I think, um, with the way that, uh, Trump operated his 2016 campaign, you know, his policies or his ideas in terms of like actual governance may or may not stick around. But I think his campaign style definitely was kind of a paradigm shift that a lot of other people are going to try to mimic or replicate in the future. Um, You know, because what he sort of tapped into, uh, you know, perhaps intuitively or perhaps because, you know, he saw the same business model flaws that we did, uh, yeah. you know, many years ago is that, um, you know, newspapers are really addicted to things. Their, their job is to get customers addicted to like things that hold their attention, bring them back, get them sharing stuff like that. Right. Um, you know, so it was almost, you know, like he was gaming the system in a way. Yeah. Um, and now, you know, as you mentioned earlier, looking back, um, you know, people who are sort of mainstream consumers of social media and news are like, yeah, I want to stand for but like, I got to get off Facebook. Right. Yeah. And, you know, they're seeing that now as, you know, like you said, like the problem has revealed itself in a much more obvious way than maybe it was five years ago when there were kind of like early adopters who were, you know, trying to get off social media. Um, but it wasn't, as a mainstream of an idea that like, this is actually like a bad thing for your mental health as an individual. Um, you know, and it's not just about screen time for kids. It's like, this is actually harming everyone's ability to 
function as a citizen because it's <laughs> uh, <laughs> just you know it, it's a it's a bizarre artificial world that kind of is is basically built to get you to look at ads right yeah. um, so you know what uh, we've seen since Biden took office is that ratings are like dropping precipitously for CNN, MSNBC. Fox News is down a little bit, but they're kind of always in sensational mode. So they typically are the highest rated and the most um, stable, if that makes sense. And and, and usually there is the opposition network tends to do better. Uh, yeah, because it's easier to attack the buffoon that's in as opposed to defend. There's the a lot buffoon to talk about there. basically yeah. on Fox, whereas CNN, like life is getting calmer in the eyes of, you know, the MSNBC and CNN, you know, target audience. And thus yeah. people are not paying attention as much anymore. Right. Which from a like citizenship and governance standpoint should be a good thing. But what's kind of the perverse incentive is that now CNN and MSNBC are going to make a lot less money under the Biden administration because their revenue is tied to their audience and their advertising. Right. So, you know, the question that that brings up that I think also applies to newspapers that publish online to pretty much everybody uh, is when, you know, where do we draw the line between like uh, a calmer and more positive political situation being a good thing, right. It's a good thing for us as individuals but it's actually a bad thing for these companies that ultimately decide sort of what we see and what we get access to. Right. Um, obviously they're not the only arbiters of that, but like it's a big deal what the New York times puts on its front page. Right. So if they're incentivized to make it more chaotic, then, you know, how do we figure out how to balance the public service of journalism with the sort of weird perverse incentive of advertising, you know, on, exciting articles causing them to make more money. You know, and, and I, I wonder how much of this is just the fact that like Trump as a news story is an undeniable page turner, right? Like first president to not serve in the military and not serve in government goes into the oval office. A television star becomes the president of the United States. There's a lot of, Buy the hotel across the street from the White House where everybody can, you know, funnel money into his uh, organization and stuff like that. Right. There's just like so many threads, even outside of sort of the big, you know, like Russia investigation stuff. So I think, like, there's 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 hundreds of those tabloid stories. But let's but let's be told. But let's take that out. Or just just understand that as just like, okay, news value. This would be the same as if a, you know, a a fleet of raptor sized chickens just took over Manhattan. Like that would be (laughs) a gigantic story that people would have to cover. Uh, Yeah. Was that just an aberration, if not maybe even like a death rattle to the larger trend of these ratings, uh, uh, subscription numbers and advertising rates that, again, to go back to the aughts, we were watching decline from then. It, it, it's yeah. like they, they had four years of of living the high life again, and uh, they tried to learn whatever lessons they learned from that. I don't know if they really could or or did learn much, but I, I almost wonder how much of this is just like if you look at the long term trends, yeah, they're 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 undeniable. These less people are paying attention. And it's true in, uh, you know, major metro newspapers. It's also true in TV. Like, I think um, it was the Oscars uh, or, you know, one of the award shows recently where they were saying, well, this is the lowest rated one ever. But if you look at the last 10 years, like every year has been the lowest rated one ever. Right. Because there's a ongoing downward trend. Um, You know, it's partially due to just um, the uh, sort of splintering of media. Right. Like there's a thousand things to watch on TV instead of 10, like there were a few years ago, you know, and by the same token, there's a thousand publications to read instead of one in every major metro area. Right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I work from home by the way. Yeah, that's fine. Um, uh, So, you know, I think uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, as you said, like if we look at this, you know, 10 or 15 years from now, we'll see, um, a downward trend in subscriptions 
with like the Trump bump, right? Yep. One of the things I talk about in my most recent post is um, we have, you know, the New York Magazine, the New Yorker, the New York Times, like they're all seeing like huge subscription bumps as a result of Trump's election because people are essentially like joining the resistance by subscribing to that magazine, yes. right? Um, and then, uh, you know, I don't know if their trends are going to be like CNN's, but if they are, then we're going to sort of see, you know, see them go back into kind of like stasis mode, if that makes sense. So then where does that leave the, the, the independent creators? Uh, uh, where does that leave, you know, folks like, like me and you who are, are putting together things that are, 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 are smaller. Is this partially a, a trickle down as those major uh, organizations start to shred? Like, is that why we're seeing the rise in, 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 in the sub stacks and uh, these like independent outfits? So I think what we're seeing is that um, <clears throat> people who would have been really promising journalists uh, yeah. for a major Metro newspaper 30 years ago, right, um, are identifying like these major business model flaws and they're kind of fleeing the sinking ship in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. And you can see like, you know, I would say, you know, even 20 years ago, it would have been really hard for Substack to buy somebody away from the New York Times. Yeah. But we're seeing that like on an almost weekly basis now over the last six and, months and, because and they've got this like it, incentive program going, you know? And they're doing it not even on free money. They're doing it on like a a, a downside guarantee of, of $250,000 as reported at least. Uh, yeah. Maybe there's some black market money that we're not seeing or whatever, but like by everybody's reporting, all Substack is doing is saying, hey, we'll pay you a quarter million dollars if your newsletter that you'll own, you'll own the list to doesn't make a quarter million dollars. And thus far, at least with the big people that they've brought over that they're offering that deal, it's earned out. And so therefore, Substack hasn't really even paid a dime. Yeah, I mean, it's a no-brainer business model for them, right? And I think what they're taking advantage of is, you know, not just the money, right, but the psychological, like, or the realization, right, among these writers um, that um, they really can't count on the major metro newspapers to be a career for them over the long term, yeah. right? So I actually think that's not even necessarily a positive um, thing, right? It's kind of like a sad outcome because I would rather see a news organization that was clearly acting in the public good and like got its incentives straight that could also attract really talented writers, journalists, you know, commentators, stuff like that. Um, but I think in the absence of that, you know, what you're seeing is like, I mean, if the New York Times and I'm kind of picking on them because they're the biggest and sure. most famous one, but everybody's basically in the I've, same boat. Uh, look, right? I, this is this, yeah. my, my, my audience <clears throat> knows that if there's one group of people yeah. that picks on the New York Times the most, it's journalists. So like they, and, they are, and they're they doing are a good job. I mean, like they've got a great publication, obviously, and they're getting tons of subscribers. Right. But yeah. you're also seeing this, um, you know, flight of talented writers, right, especially on kind of the opinion and, and analysis side into yeah. doing their own thing. Um, you know, and I think you and I are, you know, small examples of that, right? Like it was totally realistic for each of us to have a career path where we ended up, you know, at the Chicago Tribune or the Washington yeah. Post or or the New York Times as, you know, some of our as many of our many of our been, yeah. yeah, man, many of our peers um, are there currently. Yeah. And uh, you know, I think but what we're seeing is like <clears throat> um it's almost like comically easy for a Silicon Valley Valley company to incentivize <laughs> a good, you know, popular journalist away from the major Metro papers in part because, um, they are, um, you know, clearly showing signs of, you know, deterioration in a lot of ways. But I think yeah. the other thing that people like about, um, Substack and ghost and Patreon is that, they allow you to at least partially exit the um, money for eyeballs equation, right? Yeah. So like the, the, the whole like social media traffic moves you into viewing advertising on my website business model, um, you know, I think has accelerated 
the decline of these larger publishing companies because people are just, uh, you know, their consumers or readers are aware of the business model now, right? And they're saying like, well, this article is obviously got a ridiculous headline that is like borderline misrepresenting what's in the article, <laughs> but it's because they want me to click through. I'm now going to see six ads for the thing that I Googled, you know, 15 minutes ago yep. while I'm reading this article. And they're like, this is obviously a privacy violation. It's obviously misleading me in a way that is, you know, at least sort of intentional. Right. Um, and when you have a model that is based on subscribing to individual writers or, you know, creators, you know, I think it's kind of like the equivalence of like grassroots donor donors, right? Like it feels better. It feels more, um, you know, legitimate and fair, right. As opposed to feeling like you're kind of being swindled in a way, even though, you know, that business model has always existed, um, in the sense that, newspapers have been selling advertising for a hundred years. Right. Yeah. And the guy on the corner saying extra extra was kind of doing the same thing, but just in a more analog way. Right. Um, but I think, you know, we're seeing how um, just cranked up it's gotten in terms of the quantity and intensity of that business model um, has been a real turnoff for readers and it's making them, you know, seek other stuff basically and, and latch on to other stuff that, you know, like hiatus or like the sort of, you know, simple Patreon Substack subscription model, like, you know, allows you to just chill out a little bit and not feel like you are going to get bombarded by advertising every time you touch something. I also feel like a lot of mainstream sources feel very samey right now. And, and yeah. I think I'm, I'm, I'm probably of this mind because we've been following on, on this show and, and the newsletter the idea of the like COVID origin, like lab leak yep. versus uh, uh, it coming from a animal. And that is something that now is gaining like traction. And now yeah. mainstream media is like, well, let's really look into this. But when you look at the coverage of it a year ago, it was, you know, and largely because Trump said it, it was like, it's the same as hydroxychloroquine, which was eventually kind of validated to be not as uh, uh, yeah. know, that was that was more blown up than it should have been. Uh, but the lab leak wasn't. And and the lab leaks kind of important. And I don't know why in this modern era. And, and I guess uh, if I were to take a guess, it's because everybody's scared. So you run for the most safe space. You don't want to be the one who's saying, well, maybe Trump's right unless you yeah. are a right leaning organization but it does speak to the fact that like if that was just politically motivated at least on some level as opposed to science motivated then beyond where we we want to go with bias in the media it just represents a lack of confidence that there's nobody at these papers there's nobody at these networks that wants to be the yeah. like i don't know lab leak thing seems like it's still possible show me the or evidence even like it is theoretically possible that somebody I dislike and disagree with and yeah. who is, you know, basically an asshole in public, right. Could be right sometimes. Right. Or could yes. be, maybe have, maybe have guessed correctly. Even like, I don't think that Trump, I, I'm certain he had no information beyond what was available to all the journalists. Right. But he was like, this seems like it could be a thing, you know, yeah. and obviously like he turned it into a political, you know, football, but, um, you know, I think another um, example of that, that maybe is a little bit less sort of controversial or like science yeah. uh, detective work uh, is um, opening and closing schools, right? Sure. So I think what happened over the summer was Trump said something to the effect of all schools should be open. And then there was this like instant closure of all <laughs> schools, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, and obviously um, the people who are running school boards and a lot of, you know, urban areas are very liberal and thus very like anti-Trump, right? Which makes sense. Like it makes sense to be anti-Trump because you disagree with all his policies and he's doing crazy stuff in office. At the same time, I think the data and research since then has borne out the idea that like we probably should not have closed elementary schools for a year, you know? Um, and that is a really hard pill to swallow 
for a lot of people. And there's even, I mean, there's schools that like just reopened in the last yeah. month. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I think those are both areas where <clears throat> you definitely saw like the hurting, uh, that takes place. Like, and, you know, they talk about hurting in polls, right. Where yeah. no pollster wants to be the outlier. Right. And I think we see something similar where like, well, if NPR and the AP and the Washington Post are saying it, like, am I really going to be the outlier who's saying, well, maybe it's really not that risky to send, you know, seven-year-olds to class, you know? Um, but yeah, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough kind of challenge, right? Because as we know, journalism and newspaper folks are like a very insular group. And there's, yes. there's so, I mean, there's, you could just write inside baseball stories like for the rest of your life about decisions within groups of journalists. Right. Um, so how do you, um, you know, again, like get back to that idea of like, this is a public service, right. Um, in that sense, like we need to be, uh, sort of skeptical and adversarial, but in a healthy way, right. Where we're willing to, to change our minds and willing to like, um, at least take a, to, you know, uh, approach some of these questions with like a little bit more open-mindedness while stopping before we, you know, platform people who are psychotic and, and hateful. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, I guess I would, I would err on the side of accidentally platforming a psycho <laughs> than, than having this world where it, it does seem like, we're, we're, we're at our thinnest in terms of where the assumed truth is. And and yeah. that's something that I think is really weird. I don't even know if I'd say that it's dangerous, but I do think that it's very, very weird that a, you know, all the things that I think we grew up loving uh, in, in journalism were about like, no, let's explore. Let's, let's show the yeah. facts. Let's, let's say what we know. Let's say what we don't know. And that's the worth. The worth is that the world is a big, ugly, jagged ball of glass. And we're just going to yeah. tell you who got cut and where you should not hold your hands. And I think one of the biggest takeaways for me with uh, the pandemic is that the correct answer to a lot of these questions was, I don't know. No yeah. one knows. Right. Um, but that is not an exciting headline. Right. Yeah. Like, no one knows if we should reopen schools or not. So let's have a debate about the pros and cons of that, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's a much more attractive article if we say experts say that everyone's going to die if we reopen schools or experts say that, you know, liberals are stealing our kids' education, right? So, yeah. you know, those, um, you know, I think the need for that um, sort of excitement to generate traffic is also part of the reason why uh, the calm focused and perhaps ambivalent version of the news doesn't really exist anymore because it doesn't really make any money anymore. Well, it is something that you can get if you yeah. are a subscriber to hiatus, tell folks where they can go do that. Hiatus.net. Just that simple. It's that simple. Plug it in. There's free stuff. There's opportunities to subscribe. You can get the email newsletter. You can browse the archives. And uh, you'll hear from me once a week with uh, calm, focused news briefing and a couple times a week with uh, additional articles, book reviews, stuff that basically is designed to get you off the infinite scroll and uh, keep you learning in a positive way. Uh, I can I can say with absolute confidence that if you like this program, you are going to very much appreciate and enjoy hiatus. I would encourage everybody to at least get on the mailing list. And uh, if you have the scratch, go ahead and subscribe as well. Our guest has been the author of that newsletter, Rob Howard. Thank you so much for joining us, Rob. Thanks for having me. Hope to see you again soon. I've said it once. I'll say it again. If you want to know what's going to happen the next week in politics, I'm your man. You're already listening to the guy that can tell you that. But Justin, you're saying, uh, you only do shows that come out on Wednesdays and Fridays. How am I going to know what happens during the next week? Well, I'll tell you, boyo. 
You head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. You sign up at the $3 level. Not only are you immediately going to feel a surge of excitement, a surge of pride that you are trimming off just a, just a piece of your budget to support media that literally cares about you. Because as we just talked about with Rob, uh, look, when you're running with the big boys, you're basically a rounding error. But here, I know each and every one of you and your opinion and quite frankly, your well-being matters to me. I want the meals that I prepare for you guys to be both nutritious and delicious. And so, if you pay me that $3 per week, what you're going to get is two bonus episodes. The first bonus episode is your first listen on Monday morning. It is the PX3 Look Ahead, or as it's already being called by some of our, our, our current patrons, Sunday, 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 because it covers all of the Sunday shows. In it, I'm going to highlight at least one or two, usually three stories that because of their prominence on the Sunday shows based on what the guests want to talk about and what the media wants to broadcast, I can fairly accurately predict what is going to play out over the next week, barring news that changes it. Last week, it was the CDC mask mandate, Israel and Palestine, and this January 6th commission. It was clear as day that those were going to be the biggest topics. Israel and Palestine has faded just to scouch, but we have seen nothing but more coverage of this evolving January 6th commission. You are ahead of the game if you're already a $3 club member. If you're not, I'm telling you, this is when we can reframe our habits, reframe how we are looking at the news. And I'm doing my best to try and do that, not only with these Patreon bonuses, but also, and by the way, you get an extra episode on Thursday as well. But also what we're going to do after this, we're going to get back to history a little bit. It's time for us to start filling ourselves in on the gaps of where we have been politically. So by the time that we ratchet up the heat again, we're going to be prepared for it. Support this show and I will do my best to support your news consumption habits. Take politicsseriously.com. All right, guys, new segment. As we explore one of my favorite topics, negative ads, why they happened, what they were attacking, and how they affect us today. Let's face facts. Politicians are scared creatures. They fear, they fear what can hurt them in these brutal first-past-the-post contests. Their vulnerabilities that are exposed in these ads linger in our modern world and have shaped the political landscape that we live in today. And so, we begin this series in 1988 with Willie Horton. Bush and Dukakis on crime. Bush supports the death penalty for first-degree murderers. Dukakis not only opposes the death penalty, he allowed first-degree murderers to have weekend passes from prison. One was Willie Horton, who murdered a boy in a robbery, stabbing him 19 times. Despite a life sentence, Horton received 10 weekend passes from prison. Horton fled, kidnapped a young couple, stabbing the man and repeatedly raping his girlfriend. Weekend prison passes. Dukakis on crime. So, how true was that ad? Well, while governor of Massachusetts, Massachusetts, Michael Dukakis did support a furlough program for prisoners with life sentences, believing that having something to look forward to while you are waiting the rest of your life in prison to die would encourage good behavior. Well, in the case of Mr. Horton, that something to look forward to was not returning to prison 
and then doing again what put him in jail to begin with. Horton was serving a life sentence for murdering a 17-year-old gas station attendant in 1974. Twelve years later, in 1986, he's issued a weekend furlough pass and just never comes back. In 1987, he breaks into a Maryland home and twice rapes the woman after beating and stabbing her boyfriend. Horton is later, later shot and captured by Maryland police. A Maryland judge is so annoyed with the Massachusetts furlough program that he refuses to transfer him back to Massachusetts for fear that Horton will get out again. Indeed, it is in Jessup in Maryland where Mr. Horton lives today. Still alive. All this history is here so we can explain that the furlough program was, in 1988, an ugly situation. It was a bad program that was later repealed. Here's how bad. The Lawrence Eagle Tribune ran 175 articles about the furlough program and won a Pulitzer Prize for their reporting. This was not just some random piece of opposition research that was blown out of proportion. This was very bad and a reasonable piece of dirt on Dukakis's resume that he should have been prepared for or at least be prepared to distance himself from. It wasn't a buried secret or a fringe conspiracy theory. Not only had it won an award that media people care about, half this story happened in Maryland, which is effectively local to D.C. This was going to seep into the mainstream of a presidential election involving Michael Dukakis, and that time just happened to be in 1988. What's more is that the furlough program, although not specifically Horton, had already been brought up in this race before that ad. It was during the Democratic primary debate, during the primaries that eventually selected Dukakis. The person that brought it up? Al Gore Jr. So, why did the attacking candidate issue that ad? Well, here's the thing. There are two Willie Horton ads that people tend to conflate. The first and most important was not issued by the Bush campaign. It was an independent organization. What we now know was a political action committee or PAC. So yes, before Citizens United, before McCain-Feingold, these organizations existed and affected races. So why did this outside group run the ad? Well, at the time that they're probably raising money and thinking about what they'll do, Dukakis was winning. By July, Dukakis had a 17-point lead on Bush. And while this does explain why the ad would be put into production and why the most negative furlough story might have been selected, the polling doesn't totally back up the narrative that this ad totally turned the race. Weekend Passes, the name of the commercial the pack ran, didn't air until September 21st. And by September, Bush had already reversed his fortunes and had taken a seven-point lead. Now, after the Weekend Passes ad ran, Bush later ran two other ads to capitalize on how popular they were. Revolving Doors was the biggest. That ad featured prisoners walking in and out of prison through revolving doors. Now, 
I'm assuming, and I haven't done a ton of research on this race. I, I really have just done enough so I could do this segment. But based on my cursory understanding of it, my guess is that this race was ultimately a referendum on how pleased America was with the Reagan economy and that they thought Bush would be a competent steward of it. Dukakis, quite frankly, just might have been too liberal for 1988 America. But if the Horton ad didn't turn the tide, it certainly helped with the blowout that was to come. Largely because Dukakis had no answer for what he very, very, very much should have seen coming. So how did Dukakis handle it? Poorly. Very poorly. Dukakis's 88 campaign was either very arrogant or very poorly run. Either way, I think the candidate thought he knew everything. Here's Dukakis during a debate after the Horton ad runs with commentary by Susan Estrich, his campaign manager. Governor, if Kitty Dukakis were raped and murdered, would you favor an irrevocable death penalty for the killer? That was as close as we were going to ever get to the Willie Horton question. We must have done the answer a thousand times. I know what it's like to be the victim of crime. I'm on the side of victims. No, I don't, Bernard, and I think you know that I've opposed the death penalty during all of my life. I don't see any evidence that it's a deterrent. And it came right across the plate, and he didn't see it. It was very clear after that first question we were going to go into free fall. Brutal. Dukakis said in 2012 that while he initially tried to ignore the ad during the 88 campaign, two months later he, quote, Realized I was getting killed with this stuff. End quote. You think? You think? You think the series of articles that won a Pulitzer Prize about uh, furloughed life prisoners just leaving jail and never coming back and then murdering again is gonna come back as part of your record as governor? No, yeah, I think you were right to sweep it under the rug, you ding-dong. Good Lord. Dukakis went on to lose, a, uh, to lose uh, by the final count of 111 electoral votes to Bush's 426. Dukakis had the honor of being the last Democratic nominee for president to lose the state of California as we record this show in 2021. So what was the aftermath? Well, here's the question that you're probably going to see a lot when people talk about Willie Horton. That A, it was racist, and B, it racialized political ads. Were they dog whistles demonizing black men as violent criminals? Well... As far as using race to make it more effective, I really don't think so. If Horton were white or Hispanic or Asian, but you could still run in big block letters, kidnapping, stabbing, and raping. You know, I think that gets you where you need to go. Specifically, if your point is to paint your opponent as a big, bleeding heart liberal whose fancy pants ideas are great inside the lecture hall, but actually suck in practice. Indeed, they suck so bad, murders happen. The other thing that makes me kind of doubt the idea of dog whistling in 1988 is that you know, we're not too far away from racial politics not needing to be subtle. You know, we had segregationists running for federal office not too long before this. Horton was simply a story waiting for a moment, and 
the moment was found. Now, that's not to say that there was no racial coding to the ad. Horton himself claims that he's always been known as William his entire life, and that Willie is an invented, racialized nickname to make him sound more like a black street thug. Now, what I don't know is where Willie from William came from. I haven't read all of the Lawrence Eagle source, source material and the coverage that picked up that reporting, including Reader's Digest. So I don't know who started calling him Willie, but according to Mr. Horton, he's supposed to be William. He was Willie, and that is a racial element to it. Jesse Jackson, who ran in this election, also believed that uh, this was racist, although he mostly called the Revolving Doors ad racist and not the Willie Horton one because Revolving Doors was the one that was actually produced by the Bush campaign. There is one big reality about this ad, though. It scared the daylights out of the Democrats on crime. Here is Dukakis' campaign manager, Susan Estrich, one more time. In the wake of that race, every Democratic politician I knew was tripping over themselves to vote for three strikes laws, mandatory sentencing, anything they could vote for to prove they were tough on crime. What Willie Horton did was create a generation of legislators who voted for everything. And the result was crowded prisons, suspicion in the minority community, tensions that continue to this day. So there we go. Willie Horton. Now, I, I, I tend to believe, looking back at this, that it was more of an example of Dukakis just not knowing his own weaknesses. If he had no excuse, if he had no way to talk around this, if he had no way to defend this, and even when that clip we played of Estrich uh, saying that they had practiced that, like, I, I've always been on the side of victims and I know what it's like to be a victim. Like, I don't think that's a really great thing either. You know, I, I think you would, you would almost rather say, hey, look, we, I am trying to, uh, uh, you know, rehabilitate people in my state of Massachusetts. Uh, I did not start the furlough program, but I did try to run it as it had previously been put in. Uh, have there been mistakes, mistakes with costly uh, uh, consequences? Yes, obviously. But I am always going to be on the side of uh, the, the people of Massachusetts. And this is a, a program that was in flux and I didn't start, but uh, uh, what we should really be focusing is blop and then turn it over to uh, your, your criticism of George H.W. Bush. He didn't do it. It kind of fits in with a bunch of other dumb mistakes he made during this campaign, but I don't think it turned the tide. I do just think that Dukakis was too liberal for America. And there we go. Our first negative ad, Willie Horton. Politics, politics. politics, politics, politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young for Dog and Pony Show Audio. In Austin, Texas, the show is edited by Brett Stewart. If you want to say thank you to Rob Howard or sign up for hiatus, you can go to px3guest.com. If you would like to email me, it is theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Twitter is px3tweets. Our Twitch, where you can see me live on Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays, is at px3live.com. Get on our newsletter, px3newsletter.com, and our podcast is at px3podcast.com. You can get our COVID shots equals body shots, T-shirts, masks, and more, including the tank top that I love. That's my favorite as well as other PX3 merch at politicsmerch.com. 
If you'd like to support us financially, you can do so with a one-time donation to paypal.me slash payjury. You can hit up my Venmo. Be a Venmo buccaneer and throw us just a dollar. Venmo money isn't real after all. Ian Johnson is uh, one such fine fellow. What did Ian say? Nothing. He just said, look, here's a dollar. You can also hit me on my cash app, PX3Cash. Our checks or unmarked bills or any other gifts you'd like to send is P.O. Box 153184, Austin, Texas, 78715. And of course, you can always get our bonus content at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week. One is our Monday Look Ahead that uh, will be the first podcast that you can listen to on Monday morning. And then Thursday covers all the news that we might miss in between shows on our free podcast schedule. But of course, only the $10 tier gets your name read at the end of the show, including Headphones Neil, Dr. G, the other half of Whiskey Wednesday, Idris, the Government Unfiltered Podcast, 100 Mile Runner, Berkeley Steven, Kathy Max, Zombie Doc, D, really? Methuselah, Honeythuckle, the Jeb, Middle Age Mike, Dotcom Junkie, Calamity Zap, D Laser, Lord Scale de Quince, and Nearly the Third, and Gloria Young for King of the New World Order. Utah Jimmy Montana, appraisers are awesome. Snubbies of Route 44, Miranda Janelle, Jenny, Robert, Casey, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners, Brad, Charles, David, Olin, and Angela. DL, just another pilot, Frozen Summers, J Pink, and Andrew. If you would like to hear your name next to theirs, it is takepoliticsseriously.com. And that will send us into another weekend. Boy, this springtime is burning up on us, huh? We got Memorial Day right around the corner. Uh, should have some real fun announcements on new projects that are debuting soon. But until then, thank you all for listening. Remember to tell a friend. Until next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying uh, some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more. Discuss politics, but this, this is the only show that dares discuss Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.